2005, uh, a leading American sociologist by the name of Christian Smith, he published a book containing all the research he and his colleagues had conducted about the beliefs and practices of American teenagers. At the time, it was the most extensive study ever conducted on the religious lives of young adults. And some of what Smith discovered in that study was quite surprising. For instance, he found out that as a general rule, the teens he interviewed tended to believe that their own personal happiness and satisfaction was the primary goal of religious observance. And not only that, but that it was their happiness that was also God's top priority as well. And this was true regardless of what religion they actually professed or identified with, whether they were Catholic or Protestant, Jewish or Mormon, Muslim or Hindu. All teens seem to share these same general assumptions. What's more, Smith discovered that once he got them talking about their beliefs about God, that these teens all shared a pretty similar conception of God as well. They almost all believed in God, he said, but more than that, they almost all believed in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly involved in our affairs. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. Smith used a specific word to describe this conception of God. He called it deism, which is actually a term that refers to an 18th century religious movement of people who affirmed the existence of a creator God, but strongly doubted the divinity of Jesus or the revelation of God as found in the Bible. The God of the deists was a distant God, a God who created the world, set in place certain conditions, physical laws, offered some guidance, but who was otherwise largely uninvolved in day-to-day -day life. What Smith found in his study of the, the religious beliefs of young people was something similar. Those he interviewed thought that God created the world. They also believed that God had, that he had a moral will, that he wants human beings to live a certain way. And most of them believe that on special particular occasions, especially when a person is in need, that God might intervene and help. But otherwise, the God of their understanding was distant and aloof. I bring this up because I think that those beliefs, the ones that Smith heard when he sat down and interviewed those teenagers, I think that those beliefs are very similar to how a lot of Christians think about God. Not that we're all deists. We don't question the divinity of Jesus, and we assume that the Bible is true. We also recognize that God is the one who has given us many good things, as we've been talking about in this series. He gave us the gift of life. He watches over our lives and provides us with good, with good things. He also acted in the death and resurrection of Jesus to redeem us from our sin. But after that, we think, well, after that, that he kind of leaves it up to us. We are the ones who must now believe. We are the ones 
who now bear the responsibility to to convert our friends and family by persuading them of the truth of Christianity. We are the ones who need to grow the church and ensure that those who grew up in the church remain faithful. God gave us a mission. Now it's up to us. Or at least so we often think. And that's one of the reasons that Christians are interested in often coming up with programs and techniques, with new methods to attract young people to the church, and new or better spiritual formation programs, or insightful podcasts that will give you all the latest tips and techniques to having a successful marriage or raising faithful Christian children or overcoming bad habits. We are awash in a sea of endless strategies and programs and techniques for making and forming disciples. And some of those are very good and they're very helpful, but I I would argue that our obsession over these techniques reveals something about our understanding of God. Like those 18th century deists, and like the contemporary American teens that Christian Smith interviewed, we often live as if God has given us a task and then just left it up to us. And that's because, that's because we neglect one of God's greatest gifts, which are the means of grace. In the general thanksgiving, we bless God for the gifts of creation, preservation, and blessings, and for the gift of redemption. And then after that, we go on to bless him for something more. We bless you, we say, for the means of grace. But what are these means of grace? And what does this gift have to do with the way we think about about God's ongoing and active role in our conversion and spiritual formation? That's what we're going to be discussing in this video. And, And we'll start with that first question. What are means of grace? Now, the phrase itself is simple enough to understand. The word means simply refers to a, a method or an instrument used to accomplish a goal. Just like all those programs and techniques I was talking about a moment ago, we have our own means of trying to form and change people. The difference with these means is that they're not our tools or our methods or our instruments. They're God's. For what Scripture makes clear is that unlike the distant, uninvolved God of the deists, the God of the Bible does not just give us a gospel message and tell us to have faith and follow after Jesus' example and then leave us to it. To the contrary, the God of the Bible is the one who accomplishes these things in us. He is the one who grants us faith the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8. And he is the one who works to transform us and make us more into the likeness of Christ. As Paul puts it in Philippians 1, verse 6, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Our conversion and our formation then They're not projects for us to accomplish, but gifts for us to receive. And the way that we do that 
is by making ourselves available to the, the normal instruments, the ordinary means by which God does his work in our lives. That's what these means are. They're God's chosen way of doing his work of renovation in our hearts. God's way of conveying to us the gift of his grace. And because of that, they're also the ordinary and the primary means that we receive that grace. Well, but what you might ask, what specifically are these means? Well, the primary three that have been focused on in the Christian tradition, and the three that this Anglican prayer undoubtedly has in mind when it uses this phrase, these three are the Word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. Let's talk about each of those briefly in turn. First, the Word of God. In 1547, during the time of the English Reformation, the Church of England released a book of 12 sermons, a book of homilies, they called it. And and those homilies were meant to be read aloud in every parish church throughout the nation. These homilies were a way of teaching the essential biblical truths of the faith. Most of them were written by the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man named Thomas Cranmer. And for his first homily, Cranmer chose to focus on the theme of the Word of God as a means of grace. Unto a Christian man, he says in his opening line, unto a Christian man or woman there can be nothing either more necessary or profitable than the knowledge of Holy Scripture. Now, through the rest of this homily, Cranmer goes on to explain why the Word of God is so important. Because it's through Scripture, through God's Word, that we come to know God and know ourselves, he says. Because it's through the Word of God that our minds are conformed to truth and our hearts are turned toward good. Because the Word of God teaches us what it means to love God and love our neighbor. And because it's God's Word that enables us to do just that. There is nothing, he goes on to say, There is nothing that so much strengthens our faith and trust in God, that so much maintains innocence and pureness of heart, as well as outward godly life and conversation, as continual reading and meditation of God's Word. Of course, in saying this, Cranmer is not saying anything unique. If you read his homily, you'll notice that he quotes a whole lot of Scripture and church fathers in defense of what he's saying. Cranmer is simply making an observation about how God works in the lives of his people. God's primary way of changing and transforming people. In fact, his primary way of accomplishing almost anything is through his word. That's why Cranmer devotes his first first national homily to this topic. And it's also why when he became archbishop, He made it his top priority to ensure that English translations of the Bible were being read in churches all throughout the country and that the liturgies that people were using in their worship services and in their prayers, that they were praying together, that they were all filled with Scripture. Not because Cranmer thought this was some new cutting-edge technique that he was trying to use to convert and spiritually form the country, but because he knew that this is God's primary means 
of converting and forming the souls of his people. That's why to this day, it's why Christians read and reread and memorize and meditate on the Bible. It's why we listen to God's word being read and being preached in church. It's why we study God's word together. Because it is through his word that God changes us. Because the word of God is a means of grace. But not just the word of God. The sacraments, too, are a means of grace. Around the same time that Cranmer was publishing that book of homilies, he and some other bishops were also composing a statement of faith, clarifying what the Church of England taught on some basic matters of Christian belief. And that statement, or confession of faith, is entitled the 39 Articles of Religion. You can still find it in the back of your prayer book. And one of those articles, Article 25, it talks about what Anglicans believe about the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion. At first, it actually starts off by explaining what the sacraments are not. Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession. The authors of this article felt that it was necessary to clarify this point because some Christians in their day, and some Christians today, tend to think about baptism and the Lord's Supper as something that, that Christians use to publicly demonstrate their faith. In other words, they are our means to declare or remind ourselves of something. The articles, however, deny that, or at least they deny that that's all the sacraments are. Instead, or but rather, as the article goes on to say, but rather they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's goodwill toward us by the which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. You see the distinction that this statement is making? It's saying that the sacraments are a means, that baptism and the Lord's Supper, that they're a kind of instrument for doing something, but we aren't the ones wielding that instrument. Baptism and communion are God's means, his instrument, by which he doth work invisibly in us, as the article says, to quicken, strengthen, and confirm our faith in him. As St. Augustine once put it, the sacraments are visible words. They are God's visible and tangible tools for declaring and assuring to us his grace toward us. Finally, along with listening to the word of God and receiving the sacraments, we make ourselves available to what God is doing in our lives through prayer. Prayer is, of course, one of the most important things we do as Christians. In fact, you could say it's what being a Christian is all about. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says that by faith we have been given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus himself, and that it is by and through the presence of that Spirit in our hearts that we can speak to God as Jesus did, as Abba, Father. But what exactly is the purpose of prayer? Yes, it's a wonderful thing to be able to speak to God as Jesus does. But what exactly are we trying to accomplish? 
And many times those who are new to prayer think of it as, well, they think primarily of it as a means of getting things that they need or want. Some people conceive of God as a kind of cosmic butler or genie. And prayer is a way of calling on him to help us with what we need or what we want. And of course, there's some truth to that. Prayer certainly involves petitioning God for our needs. But prayer is much more than that. And the main purpose of prayer isn't to get something from God. The main purpose of prayer is God himself, to draw closer to God, to know him, to open ourselves up to him, no matter what our situation, to share his heart and mind. In other words, the purpose of prayer isn't so much to change God as it is to change us. And the reason that we pray isn't because it's a useful tool for getting what we want. The reason we pray is because it's one of God's chosen tools, God's chosen means of giving us even more than we could think to want. To quote the late Timothy Keller, prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Scripture, sacraments, prayer. We sometimes think of these things as, as tools, as means or methods that we can use to get something done. But that's because like those American teens that Christian Smith interviewed, because we sometimes imagine that God is a distant and far off and that we are the ones responsible for turning ourselves and other people into disciples, but we're not. Just as our creation, our preservation, and our redemption are gifts, so too is our own transformation. God is the one who began the work of converting and transforming our hearts. And he is the one, Paul says, who will bring that work to completion. So let us give thanks. Let us bless God for the gift of his work in our lives and for the gift of the means that he uses to do that work. Let us bless him for the means of grace.